Okay, please turn in your scriptures to 1 Timothy. We celebrate the Lord's Supper, the first Sunday of the month, as you know. And the message on this day is normally a little bit shorter. And so over the next few Lord's Supper Sundays, I want to develop the topic of contentment. No one needs any of that, right? It's an important topic that really undergirds a lot of directives for the Christian life. And its presence or absence colors a lot of our experience. And it's also related to our Philippians series. And God willing, a great meditation to prepare us for the Lord's Supper. What is contentment? Well, I gave you a um, couple of the definitions there. The dictionary definition, the state of being satisfied with what one has, being at ease with the arrangements of one's life. Does that sound like you? The Puritan minister, Jeremiah Burroughs, developed that definition theologically, and you have that there. Christian contentment is that sweet, Inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Kind of wordy. That's what the Puritans did, but uh, he gets his point across. I like that word quiet. Um, This is off script, but I often come through afterwards, the church afterwards, and see the bulletins. And it's like written on there, uh, go to the store, take care of the dog, got to go to the dump. Like, okay, that's what's happening during the sermon. It's not exactly quiet in the mind. Yeah. First Timothy 6, verse 6 says this, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So contentment isn't absolutely necessary for life to eventually turn out okay, but it sure does make the experience more pleasant. Or to say that the opposite way, discontentment is a great sorrow that then mothers or or fathers other sorrows. I don't know if you've ever heard of or maybe read the short story called The Necklace. Anybody? Okay, a couple of people have that. Uh, I know these are French names, so I'm going to butcher them, but Matilda Loisel um, has always wanted to be rich, uh, but her husband is this uh, low-paid clerk. Well, he um, extraordinarily gets this invitation to a ball, but Matilda, is she's kind of petulant. She doesn't want to go because she has nothing nice to wear. And her husband gives her money, and actually more money than is wise, for her to buy a new dress. But even then, after then, she's, she's not happy. And he says, how about wearing some flowers to kind of, you know, sort of decorate the dress, whatever the term is. And she kind of pouting says, no. Well, how about borrowing jewelry from her friend, Mrs. Forrester? Um, and okay, and so she borrows a diamond necklace. 
and goes to the ball, and the ball is just absolutely magical, and she's in the company of influential people, and they're kind of admiring her, and, ah, it's, man, it's great. But then upon returning home, the necklace is lost, they discover. Uh, and they have to replace it. And they discover a replacement. I'm using uh, modern numbers, or, you know, um, with, with inflation and everything, uh, for around $225,000. Um, and so her husband uses an early inheritance to pay for half, and for the other half, they secure this high-interest loan. Um, and uh, so they buy a replacement. She returns necklace to Mrs. Forrester and never tells her that it had been lost because she's too embarrassed. And so for 10 years, paying off this um, huge loan, they live in poverty and kind of shabbiness, she works long hours as a cleaner, and her freshness and beauty of her youth kind of fall away from her. Her husband takes on a second job, and finally they pay off the loan. One day, Matilda comes across Mrs. Forrester. Who knows where this story is going, by the way? You've already, I know exactly, yeah, okay. <laughs> she comes across Mrs. Forrester, and who barely recognizes now this uh, stricken woman, and full of bitterness, she, she tells the whole truth to Mrs. Forrester. This is what happened. And Mrs. Forrester gasps. She says, well, that, that necklace I lent you uh, wasn't authentic. It was made out of paste. It wasn't worth more than 500 francs. And uh, there it is, your lesson of contentment and discontentment. The scriptures, is only the, the idea is that discontentment uh, can so miseries. And the scriptures are full of stories that center on the sadness of discontent. In fact, maybe that's, that's the whole theme of the sad tale from Eve and the fruit to David. And remember David's son and the Judas to Demas, all these names you know, uh, and you could keep going. Truly discontent produces sorrow plus <coughs> On the other hand, we just read, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's, it's advantageous for the one who is content and probably for others too. You can get to the top of a mountain without being in shape, but being in shape makes the hike much more enjoyable. That's kind of like what contentment is. We could press that analogy a bit further to make another point. In order to be in shape for summoning the mountain, we practice certain habits not called being in shape. The months before you climb, you don't tell your roommate, hey, I'll be gone for an hour while i in shape. No. Uh, you'll be gone for an hour while you lift weights and jog and stretch, whatever. The practices that add up to being in shape. Similarly, to be content, we practice certain habits not called being content. If someone says, hey, be content, you say, yeah, I would like that, but you really don't know what to do with that. What specific actions to be content? And contentment is a learned habit. You look at Philippians 4, verse 11, you can turn there if you want, but um, 
We're going to settle on Psalm 131. That's probably where I should have. Go to Psalm 131. But Philippians 4 verse 11 says, uh, and it's in your notes, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned. So contentment doesn't fall on you accidentally. It's acquired. Yeah? Or we could say it's retrieved. Because the actions to contentment aren't obvious. And you look at the next, if you would look at the next verse in Philippians, Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Contentment, the way to contentment is not obvious. Otherwise, probably more people would be content. For instance, we might assume that contentment has to do with stuff. Having enough or simply willing yourself to be okay with however much you have. But the scriptures suggest otherwise. You can look at the following verse in Philippians where Paul says, I can do all this contentment stuff through him who strengthens me. So it's not only or perhaps even mainly about how I treat my material possessions. Through Christ, we are content. Uh, but even that, it's a cool verse, but it, it's, it's, it's kind of shrouded. It's not transparent. Contentment doesn't depend on one's circumstances. Everybody knows that, but I'm just going to say it. You can look at those words uh, in Philippians, five words, in any and every circumstance. Just think about that. In any and every circumstance. You think, are you content? And if you say no, and you think, but I can't be because of X, well, then you're struggling with this in any and every circumstance. Both the heights and the depths have their respective challenges to contentment. Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Being abounding does not mean contentment. We know this as the society has gotten wealthier. As our society has gotten wealthier, does it proportionally increase in that, quote, to quote Burroughs, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition? Is that like that? I mean, that's America, right? Well, no. The answer is no. Uh, George MacDonald, old Scottish writer, he said, If it be riches that slay you, what matter if it be riches you have or riches you have not? Okay. So we're going to take, that was all kind of setting up this series on contentment. It was kind of, that's what's going on. But now we're going to do this over several uh, Lord's Supper Sundays. Let's. We're in Psalm 131, and we're going to read this psalm that actually we looked at um, the end of last year. A song of a sense of David. O Yahweh, my heart is not lifted up; my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. 
Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Three bedrock truths about contentment. Number one, contentment is an outcome of a studied humility. Again, these are the practices. Someone says, be content. Okay, I want that. What does that look like? Here it is. Contentment is an outcome of a studied humility. David says, my heart is not lifted up. I've rejected reflections and plans and postures and attitudes and emotions of self-importance. I am turning my back on taking myself too seriously, of being high and mighty, of always wanting to lecture people, of wanting to stand out. And then he says, my eyes are not raised too high, which is a similar phrase to the, my heart is not lifted up, but narrows the focus onto the sense of superiority to others. Haughtiness, others are below me, and I look down on them. And so David's saying, I've abandoned the rat race of comparing myself with others. Woo! That's tough, right? Right from when you're a kid. Especially when you're sisters. <laughs> I know from experience. I've never been a sister myself, okay? <laughs> that wasn't the point. Competing with other people for status, even spiritual status. Not looking down on people just because someone is rich. How many times have I heard, man, they're rich, man, they're, they're rich, they're obviously bad people. No, just because someone rich or a Democrat or who doesn't agree with my stance on how politics and religion mesh. As Eugene Peterson paraphrases, he says, no meddling where I have no business. No inwardly despising them for not recognizing my opinions right. How much smarter I am. Some of you know my son is currently without a job. And people ask me about that. And it's something, the thoughts that go through my head. When they ask me, it's, it's, it's like, I'm thinking, man, what are they, what are they supposing about that? that? That he's not talented? Or, I mean, are they like, on a cosmic scale, God is punishing him? Or worse, the actually worse thing, does it, will this explode, expose some flaw in my parenting? That he doesn't have a job? When the idea here is always competing with others. And that's not the way of contentment. Here we go. Number two, contentment is an outcome of willing inattention. Contentment is an outcome of willing inattention. David says, I've call, uh, I've, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul. That calm and quiet in my soul sounds a lot like Burroughs' definition of contentment. Involves a deliberate inattention to certain matters that he says are too great and too marvelous 
And again, when we looked at this in December, we categorized those great, too great and too marvelous matters temporally. The past, which we're talking about the course of my life or regrets or assigning blame. The present, which would be the real state of people. How exactly are God's judgments working themselves out now? Or the future, what troubles await us? How exactly are my provisions going to come? And David says, I've checked out of all that. I've stopped trying to figure all that stuff out. Why was I given this speech impediment? How is that fair? You could spend a whole lifetime. I, I actually have a friend who's a stutterer. Um, and, and that's his, it's his, his abiding thought. Why did God allow this to happen to my child? Or who is doing better right now? My family or her family? Kind of sniff around. Who's better? Am I being punished for doing that thing four years ago? What will happen if Biden gets elected to four more years? Will society go bananas if Trump wins? Will I ever get recognized for this good work that I'm doing? These are the sort of things that we are. They're, they're questions, but they're too great and too marvelous. We, we can't get to the bottom of them. I've heard that it's possible if you're very wealthy to get full body scans every six months that will detect tumors and cysts and cancers early. And, and the idea is that no one's going to take me by surprise. I'm going to see it coming the whole way. That's a thing too great and too marvelous. Contentment involves taking a deep breath. Or maybe it's exhaling. Maybe not. Not inhaling. And accepting. There are so many limitations, especially of knowledge that God, God has built into human existence. And you are going to be surprised. Trouble is coming. Our Lord says, trouble is coming. But he also says, don't worry about it, at least yet. And the apostle of our Lord says, I can't even discern my own motives, much less anything else. I don't, he says, I can't, I can't really understand that profoundly anything that's going on. And God said to Moses, hey, Moses, who made your stuttering mouth? And so again, take that deep breath and kind of unclench your jaw. I don't know if you've ever gone through a time in your life where all you, 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 you discover, my jaw is always clenched. Accept your limitations. Accept the many things, there's so many things that are too great and marvelous for you to figure out. And finally, contentment looks like a weaned child. The outcome of this studied humility and this willing inattention is analogous to a weaned child with his mom. It's the kind of trust that 
isn't self-conscious at, at all. A weaned child is not like looking at himself, even looking at his mom. A, a, a trust that is okay with ignorance and thus appears almost sometimes stupidly serene. Contentment can look sometimes almost stupidly serene. You have the wean child in your mind? Get it? Yeah? Good? You're picturing the wean child? Okay, thank you. He's probably not looking at his mother most moments, but in every moment, he's trusting his mother. Mom's always taking care of me. And so a practice of contentment is sitting quietly before the Lord and simply remembering how he's kept you fed and how he's healed you and how sometimes he's brought you before some beauty and some interest. And I'm not here talking about being grateful. That's not what I'm talking about. But just being conscious of that. And again, not dramatically conscious. Just recalling, for instance, that even in hard times, think about hard times you went through, but just you, you kind of remember, you also in those hard times came upon some pockets of humor and good people that you didn't even know that were out there and interesting stuff you, you never even knew existed. And you, yeah, it's like, the idea is, you know, mom, and it's not, maybe not even a well-articulated idea, but mom's always thinking through my life and giving me what I need. Yeah? And God's, God's always just thinking through my life. The weaned child has lived off his mother's milk. His life from her life. Yeah, I'm not telling you anything new. The mother gave of her own body to supply the young one who is now weaned. And we're in an analogous situation with God. But it's a how much more analogy. Here's what St. Paul said. Try to listen to this. This is from Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? <sighs> Unclench the jaw. Brothers and sisters, God is committed to us. I want to say that again. God is committed to us. Paul says he has given us his own son. His, the, the self of himself. His very self to us. And you think, yeah, that, of course he has. Of course he has. And so you got those blinking engine lights and you got credit card debt. And you got tires that are balding, 
and you got more frequent memory lapses, and you look at gas prices now sometimes over $4, and you, you're like, but then you, you're the wean child, you just look back to God's provision over the year, and you look a little further back to God's provision over your lifetime. And you look way back to God's provision in Jesus Christ. And how more clearly can he prove to you, I'm for you, I'm with you. Of course, I'm not going to leave the one for whom Christ died. And again, I, brothers and sisters, the idea here is don't get excited about this. And I don't think any of you are by the look on your faces. But that's good. Don't get excited about this. Don't even get emotional. Don't even be thankful. Just accept what has happened. And here it is. Expect more of the same. Expect more of the same. Because the Father has given His Son for you. And Paul says, I can do this whole contentment thing through Him who strengthens me just by virtue of knowing the Father gave him up to bring me into his charge. So there it is. The practices of contentment so far. You have them spelled out there. When you start to think uppity or you care hard about people thinking you're just uncommonly swell or accomplished, let the klaxons sound in your mind. Because you're on your way to discontentment. You're always trying to live for other people's Um, what's the noun I'm looking for? Tom, other people's approval. Number two, accept there is much unopened to you. And just one example, the very fact that God has not told you your day of death, and it will most likely surprise it will, uh, it will surprise you, should represent how much God has just kept you in the dark. It's planned. And you have to be okay with that because you trust him. That was the best thing for you, to be kept in the dark about these great and marvelous things. And number three, don't dwell in the past and don't want to live in the past, but allow memories to substantiate God's commitment to you. A wean child, you, you, you know who's been taking care of you all this time. He, he bought you. He, again, he bought you. He bought you with his own self. And he's good and he does good. And you know that, and he's done good, and you remember that. And that is toward contentment. Heavenly Father, bring us into the secret of contentment so that we learn to draw strength from our Lord Jesus Christ, who through him, we can do this contentment thing. We ask in his name and for his glory and for your glory. Amen.